We literally just waited for somebody to come to the back alley of this bank to open the door. We walked up in a shred bin uniform of the company that managed the shred bins. We had found a shirt at a thrift store um, that looked like the same color. It was a button up and we made our own patch for it. We walked in, said we were here to pick up the shred bin and we just walked out and put the shred bin in our truck and took off. And inside the shred bin hadn't been any anything shredded. It had a bunch of passwords on sticky notes and all this kind of stuff stuff and so immediately we got like more access than pretty much we had gotten through the phishing campaign and the external and, and stuff like that. That was this week's guest, Jason Haddix, casually explaining how him and his team managed to hack into a bank. This episode is truly awesome and you do not want to miss it. Jason is someone that commands so much respect in the world of penetration testing and security. And I'm thrilled that he decided to sit down with Dwayne and myself to talk about his journey. Jason's hacking journey started off as a bit of a miscreant teenager before honing his skills and truly becoming one of the best penetration testers in the world and even getting that coveted number one spot on the bug crowd back in 2014. But Jason's done something that a lot of penetration testers and hackers haven't been able to do. And let's move all the way through into the executive table and boardroom of some truly massive and awesome companies. Today, Jason is the CISO and hacker in charge at Butterbot. Butterbot is an awesome company. It's a veteran and minority-owned organization that specializes in emulating real-world attack with a truly world-class team. If you want to protect yourself against attackers, the best form of defense is to hire those attackers and let them show you where your weak points are. And that's exactly what Butterbot does. Before Butterbot, Jason was a CISO at Ubisoft and has some pretty cool stories to share about his time there. And he's also been an executive and held many leadership roles in some pretty awesome companies along the way. In this episode, Jason shares with Dwayne and myself his journey from becoming a hacker to becoming a CISO and shares some pretty ludicrous stories about his time along the way. I can't wait to get into it. So without further ado, here's the conversation that I had with Dwayne McDaniel and Jason Haddix, the hacker in the boardroom. What made you start to kind of get into cybersecurity? What made you start getting into this this field and kind of how, how old were you when it all, when the bug hits you, the security bug? I've always been a little bit of a hustler, I would say, even even in you know grade school and high school and um, uh, you know in my early 20s. Um, I actually did a Darknet Diaries episode about some of this, but my early 20s, um, I was trying to make fake IDs. Basically, I bought one from a friend of mine um, to just get into bars before I was 21. And, um, and I got it and it was horrible and obviously didn't pass. And I got busted at the door of, uh, you know, one of the bars I tried to go to and it got taken away. I didn't get in trouble or anything like that. They just took it away. But, uh, but I got really mad at the fact that, you know, it was so crappy. And so I ended up, um, kind of on what was, you know, before the dark net, you know, the forum ecosystem for, uh, you know, carters and uh, people who made fake IDs, which back then was, um, you know, counterfeit library and shadow crew and stuff like that. I ended up trying to make my own fake IDs. Um, and so I ended up doing that just for me and my friends. And um, that kind of put me into this world where, you know, there are several ecosystems there. There is the ecosystem, people who are making fake IDs. Uh, there are the ecosystems of people who are making fake credit cards. Um, and there are the ecosystems of the hackers who are hacking, 
you know, what they call the dumps of the credit cards. And it still works this way today. Um, and the hackers supply the carters, you know, to put the cards on the fake credit cards. And then the carters need the IDs to cash out at retail stores to match the credit name on the credit card that they make that's fake. And so it was this ecosystem. And so I got to know a lot of the hackers. And I was like, wow, you know, this stuff is really cool. This was, you know, back when web hacking was just, you know, getting you know, kind of like popular and, um, you know, network hacking had been predominantly the, you know, the, um, the industry at that point. And so, you know, that was, I was getting exposure to it. I wasn't really like super interested or anything like that. And then, uh, shadow crew, the main forum site that I was, you know, on got busted and taken down by the FBI and the secret service. And it was a worldwide raid on, uh, with like Interpol and like the Canadian Mounties showed up in Canada and like basically took down all the, uh, the highest ranking members of shadow crew and, uh, put them in jail. Um, and it was a big thing. It was the first big bust of one of the dark net forums that had ever really happened. Um, they continue that pattern today that, you know, like one will get too big and they'll bust it down. And, um, but I wasn't like, you know, I had sold, you know, like a couple IDs or something like that on the forum. Really. It was, it was more like an art project to me, right? Like I found the challenge of making these things like, um, like really interesting and, you know, had some mystique and danger to it. But after that, um, I was taking the semester after all that happened, I was taking a, uh, college elective class, and or I was looking at my electives list, and there was a class called Ethical Hacking and Network Defense, which is the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. And I'm like, oh, I'll go check it out because I was doing tech stuff. I was doing Cisco stuff. Um, and so I took this elective, and my teacher's like teaching this stuff, and I'm like, this is old already compared to what people on the forums were doing. This is years old. Um, and this is not what modern hacking looks like, at least from my exposure to it. And so uh, I talked to him a lot and he was like, he's like, you, you're very knowledgeable on this. You could do this for a living. And I'm like, what do you mean you could do this for a living? He's like, there's this thing called penetration testing and you basically act like a bad guy, but you are a good guy and you get paid a lot of money for it. And I was like, yo, that sounds epic. And so ever since then, I've been hooked and I went on a tear and I just... I mean, I beg, borrowed and stole everything I could on modern penetration testing and made friends in the industry. And, you know, I've been in it for 15 years in offensive security um, and I've never let it go. Even when I transitioned to being a security leader, it's always been in my blood is hacking. That's an awesome backstory. Uh, <laughs> literally to be part of, I mean, it's not a good thing, but yeah. to be part of like an early raid like that and for something yeah. so international and yeah honestly famous um maybe not in the best way infamous probably the better word there um that, that's such an interesting path and it's interesting to say that about academia being behind it it always feels like it lags behind i was recently at a conference where it was very evident how far behind like they're still writing standards on how to migrate from on-prem to the cloud which feels like that's 2008, which actually came out. Um, I'm very curious on the next part of your journey. So pen testing makes total sense. How do you jump from that seat to CISO? I know there's a lot of listeners out there who are wondering, like, how do you get to the exec suite in the first place? But from the pen testing perspective, that seems like a really unusual path. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm a big believer in that, um, like, you really can't be an effective security leader unless you sat in the seat of someone who's done security. And I, and I mean that in the sense of not 
specifically applicate, uh, you know, offensive security, but, you know, either red or blue or, you know, purple, but like, you can't just come in there as an ex- like a haha executive, I call them, um, and just lead like a security organization. Cause you have no idea exactly what's going on. You have no idea how to orient or prioritize your program. And this is actually where I get into it with a lot of other CISOs out there because they believe that you can manage it completely from a risk perspective. And, um, I just don't believe that's true. Anyway, my path there, um, you know, I did offensive security, uh, for a long time um, at smaller consultancies. And then I went to HP. And uh, so when I went to HP, the industry was just starting to get big for web and mobile um, and, and mostly, you know, dynamic testing, basically. And um, at that point, it was uh, Dan Kaminsky, um, who was amazing and not with us anymore, which is really sad, uh, acquaintance of mine. Um he was the director of penetration testing at IOActive, which back then was the most legit consultancy that existed in the scene. Um, Dan was doing, you know, like worldwide talks. And and I just had this goal of being Dan Kaminsky, basically, um, and and building a team of uh, great offensive security people. And so that's what I, I did at HP. I built this small consultancy inside of HP called Shadow Labs. And um, once, you know, I realized that like, oh, building a consultancy uh, is not just about testing. It's about hiring and about culture and about leadership. I had to learn all those things and I cut my teeth there. Um, and so, you know, me and a buddy of mine ended up building this thing called Shadow Labs instead of HP that was wildly successful. Um, we were on the cutting edge of mobile testing for a long time back when it was um, Objective-C. And um, we had like, you know, I think the second binary analysis engine I wrote for iOS applications that could identify security things. It was right behind Veracode, basically. Um, And so it was uh, it was really dope. But I got to learn um, a lot of things about leadership and, and building the team. And then I've always been pretty good at speaking and breaking down really technical concepts to non-technical people. Um, And I'm good under pressure. And so those intangibles basically kept me at a leadership spot at HP. And then after HP, um, I migrated into kind of the bug bounty world and I took a leadership position there. Um, And then a leadership position after that uh, was my, uh, you know, I, I managed security at bug crowd as well as some operations. And then, um, after that, you know, these are five-year stints, right? But after that, I went to Ubisoft, which was my big, like, uh, like corporate security CISO job. Um, and uh, that's a 22,000-person organization. And you really learn about, um, you know, like what a real CISO has to deal with, not just like a startup CISO. And uh, I have war stories from there. And I feel like my three and a half years there was honestly 10 years. Um, and yeah, and so, you know, that was my path. Uh, but I think the intangibles got me there. I think, I think being able to break down uh, and present are two really big things. I think understanding the tech at a level no one else around me did, but having those intangibles on top of that really got me to where I did. Um, you know, learning about sound security programs and what those look like. Uh, you know, being good under pressure. I think all those things got me kind of into the leadership path um, to this day, honestly. And I'm a CISO now at, at Buttobot. Right on. Thanks for thanks for walking us through your resume. You're hired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that's an awesome story. Um, uh, for, for real, it, it's 
being able not just to talk the talk, but walk the walk, as they say, um, like knowing both sides of that, so important. I've met so many, especially researchers who they know their stuff inside and out, but wow, they can't explain it to you at all. And they can't explain the business value or align it. It sounds like that your your background as a pen tester, as someone, an attacker, um, really sets you up for success here. Would you say that's like, I, I know you already said that you prefer that in your executives but do you think that's really a necessity to have that kind of background or can you think CISOs can reach that some other other path yeah i mean you can you can hire around you right like really great experts and and advise you but then the CISO job is is really just a management job which is like not the kind of CISO job i want really um uh, i want to be involved in strategy and and um you know really build a program so uh yeah, I think that I think that having some technical um, relative experience, uh, whether it's, you know, you came up, you know, at some point being an admin or SOC or threat intelligence or testing or even a developer uh, who understands the product really well, who could threat model it and, you know, something like that. I think that it's a tremendous advantage for CISOs these days. Um, and like I said, it, it's specifically a tremendous advantage because you can prioritize your security program in the correct way instead of just the way that every other CISO is telling you to do it, right? Like, oh, this risk and this risk, and you're not chasing ambulances everywhere. You really understand what your business is facing, why specifically your business faces that problem, you know, what the technical controls are that are available to you or are not available to you. And um, yeah, but you can you can hire experts around you who can do who can do those things too like director levels or deputy levels and um, i've seen plenty of people do it that way and who just focus on the leadership and culture part and there's some amazing CISOs who do that but i think one of most of the ones i know actually ha also have a technical background so um, i just think it's a tremendous superpower um and this is a culture war between CISOs actually like um like when you talk to CISOs they will they will be on one side of this fence and they'll be like a technical person should never be a CISO, like ever. They don't understand business. They don't know, understand how to be an executive. Honestly, I find it easier. I found it easier in my career to learn executive leadership, executive management, how to handle my seat at the board, influence and power, politics. I learned all that. Whereas I don't know many CISOs who could learn how to design an effective security program at a technical level. So. That's a great answer. <clears throat> I, I want to dive into an area that you, you touched on a little bit back. That's going all the way back to Shadow Labs. Um, and it's the questions are going to evolve around building you know, effective teams, because this is one of the most important things that any security division you know, and the CISO can, can implement is maintaining staff in this climate, finding staff, making them feel valued. Now, the reason I bring up Shadow Labs is because I sent out – uh, some inspectors and spies recently, and I heard rumors coming back about shadow lab tattoos. You know, how do, how do you make your employees feel like such a family and such a team and want to do to such good that they go on to get tattoos, not of the company that they work for, but of the division inside that company? Boy, so okay, so I did a whole talk on this at Black Hat last year. So, um, so Black Hat has what they call the CISO Summit. It happens a day before the actual um, regular events. Um, and so I talked last year about this experience and how I built some of the really like tight knit teams that I did. And so at HP, um, I mean, first of all, it was 
it was the interview process for everybody that, you know, we brought on board, right? Like we wanted really passionate people. And over the course of my career, I've learned that um, I actually don't want to over-index on the most technical people. I want to over-index on the people who have like a passion and drive and fire. And so I have some interview questions that are specifically about how you handle situations or, you know, how you spend your free time. And I'm not into like hustle mentality where like you need to be working 15 hours a day. That's not really it. I just want to make sure that the thing you're doing every day, you wake up to do, right? Um, Like that's like, if you're a marketing person, I want you waking up every day, like hyped about our brand and like to build our brand. And like, you know, if you're a tester, like, you know, I want you to believe in the thing that we're doing. And so that was like the first step. Right. And then the next step is once you can get some of those people in the doors to train them up to be the best in the world. And luckily, I had already some support there. I worked with Daniel Meisler at Shadow Labs and myself and Rick Dunham and some other really, really good testers. And we built out our own methodology, did our own research and then trained everybody up to be at our level and uh, better than us, honestly, eventually. And so we hired good people um, who had, you know, like good traits. And then we trained really, really, really well, cross training, training all the time, hanging out with each other. And then it was about retaining. And so that was mostly what I did the talk about. And so what we did is, is, you know, like people have to believe in your brand, um, wherever you're, I don't care if you're an internal security team at Salesforce, or you're a consultancy that's out in the world trying to sell your stuff, or if you're Git Guardian or whatever, people have to believe in your brand. And branding and marketing is important even to employees. And so we went out and we built a custom logo that looked dope. Um, every year we did versions of different stickers and stuff that around our logo. Um, and uh, and we made it like a hallmark piece of our identity. And Um, we were always at conferences presenting and, you know, like, so our branding and marketing was really, really strong for our internal team and presented them as, you know, the experts that they were. And that's really important to employees to be like presented and like that. Um, and so, you know, like that on top of like, you know, generous packages, honestly, like, you know, if you're, if you're hiring security professionals, right, like there's, you know, one of the things I talked about was like, what can you compromise on in the offer phase? I broke it down into phases, right? And so when you're getting these employees on board, usually the stuff that's set in stone is, you know, base range, equity range, yearly bonus and benefits. Usually those have a range that are set in stone, but the things that are negotiable that are really powerful for testers are the hiring bonus, uh, the PTO amount, the work from home arrangement. Um, nowadays, more people are talking about four day work weeks. 80-20 time of 20% research where they can go off and make tools or do presentations or whatever they want, the travel and training amount, um, the mentorship you give them, um, you know, these type of things are the intrinsic and negotiable sections of, of getting employees to, to come on. And then once we got on, we had this great brand with, um, you know, we had like this castle-like dude who had three points on his head. Um, with, you know, like mean looking eyes. And he kind of looked like the Autobot symbol from Transformers. And so he is the thing that we would transform every year into a different thing. So when we got really big into mobile testing, we had an artist do a rendition of him exploding out of an iPhone. And that was our brand for that year at DEF CON. And we all wore that shirt. And everybody was like, who the hell is Shadow Labs? This is amazing. Like, look at this. And, you know, another great consultancy that did this in offensive security was Spider Labs. Spider Labs also did this with their spider and like had different spider stuff. And you have to embrace that. And then we did award ceremonies, challenge coins. We inducted people into this like 
kind of upper echelon of Shadow Labs who had contributed so much to the business. You know, we had regional meetups, you know, gaming days together where we would game together, cross training days, movie nights, like uh, book stipends. I mean, we really tried to do everything to make the employees feel like a family, that they worked together, that they were respected by us. Um, and then also one of the things I think is actually really great that you can do as an employer of, of highly technical people is, is reduce friction. And so like in, in our world was, uh, reporting was the worst thing in offensive security at the end is writing the report. Right. Um, and so we invested a lot of money into making a platform to make reporting as easy as possible. And I can't tell you how many people were like, that's amazing. I wouldn't go anywhere else, honestly, because I love my job. I can focus on the testing. I don't really have to worry about the reporting, um, which is the, you know, so reducing friction in certain ways is also like, um, you know, one of the best things. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of other stuff, but I had a whole presentation on it, but that's kind of the, the, you know, the blueprint I used and it seemed to work out pretty good. So, yeah. Is the branding that you're speaking about, you know, is that branding, was that like when we talk about marketing and branding and, you know, I'm in the marketing team at Git Guardian. So this is kind of like what I, you know, think a lot about. And when I'm thinking about branding, it's like outward branding. I'm trying to get everyone. We invest in like cool T-shirts and stuff. But that's all for the purpose of like ultimately that somehow, some way down the track, that's going to lead to some big lead. Whatever. When you're talking about branding, you're talking about branding in a way that kind of brings an internal team together and it's like it doesn't even matter what anyone else thinks is that right you like you're not you, you, you. it serves both purpose yeah that idea serves both purpose so like internally it was like shadow labs members had like way cooler swag than any hp person ever had they had the logo which only they could carry around and i mean we did um timbuktu shoulder bags backpacks patches um, challenge coins that only they got for big milestones. Like I said, we had those award ceremonies where we gave out actual physical awards. I have a couple of my wall with the, you know, the, um, the logo on them. And, um, uh, and then like the t-shirts that were only for staff, we had versions that were only for staff and then other ones that we gave out to everybody. And just that kind of stuff, I think, you know, like, uh, I mean, I guess it worked as I said, basically. So, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Is I think that's such a cool idea of like that internal that internal marketing to make everything. Did you have anyone from HP try and come over to Shadow Labs? Did you have people being like, "What is? It? How do I get one of those coins or those bags?" <laughs> you know, it was you know we ran Shadow Labs for a couple of years, um, stealth, and then big HP got kind of like angry about it. They were like, "You can't divert from the HP branding," and we were like, "Hey, listen, it's already making money and going. Like, get out of here." Like. Um, and we were outperforming many other divisions at HP by far. And so um, really, we got to keep it. But yeah, I mean, as far as coming over, we had a couple people come over during our tenure, but we tended to grow our own talent a lot. We would we would find people who we were hungry, who were new, um, you know, who wanted to be part of this family. And we would we would basically mold them into these awesome testers. So, <laughs> yeah. Adam, so I wonder to circle back before we um, completely finish talking about the CISO role and the transition over there. Um, there's a lot of people listening to this are f fresh in their uh, journey into security or uh, they just simply haven't had the chance to ask. Like, wh what resources would you tell them, hey, go investigate this? Or is there a, any specific courses or any resources? Anything that they should be 
digging into if CISO is their end goal? Yeah, so there's been a, I mean, so like the CISO job is so wide, right? And it depends on what type of CISO you're you're heading out to be. Um, there's a great mind map out there. And I, I don't know, the, I can't remember the person who made it, but it breaks down all the components of basically a CISO's job into sections of a security program. Um, if you just Google CISO mind map, um, you'll probably find it. It's like a, it's got it broken into co- quadrants with color. And I think it's, it's a really good um, visibility of all the domains you need to have some mastery. And so then you need to go like at least be dangerous in a couple of those domains. So um, as far as like resources to get you there, like uh, I would say there's, there's a couple of good books. They're called the CISOs desk reference. Um, and it's a, it's a couple of CISOs who um, basically built three, books um, of their experiences and chronicled their jobs for like the last 10 years um, on, you know, different types of CISO roles, like, you know, when they had to implement compliance or when they were more of a cloud shop or when they did X, Y, and Z. And so getting an exposure to, you know, what a day-to-day is like building that security program and uh, everything like that. But um, I mean, honestly, like there's not a lot of resources out there for people to become a CISO, right? Like I think I think what happens most of the time is you have an executive who's a really good executive and gets handed the reins because they know that that person can, um, you know, handle a seat at the table with the board and the other executives at the company and can work well and, you know, can do politics and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then they take over security and they become a CISO and then they stay a career CISO and um, that's a thing. And they move from CISO job to CISO job, usually about three years at a time. And then you have the people who come up through the tech side, which end up like going from, you know, like SOC manager to SOC director to operations, to security operations director, then to like deputy CISO and then to CISO. And that's the track that they go through is one of the technical domains. So, you know, you have security engineering that could lead there. You have SOC that could lead there. You have offense that could lead there, like red teaming and penetration testing. You have, um, you know, even I've even seen some development leaders move up to CISO. Uh, CTOs sometimes step over to CISO to um, like as an adjacency. Um, and so like one of the technical domains will lead them there, but, uh, there's not a lot honestly out there. Um, there's a couple podcasts that exist. Um, CISO Tradecraft is one, which interviews a lot of popular CISOs. The CISO summits exist at like Black Hat and stuff like that, which you can get a lot of experience from, but those are invite only. So I wish there was more resources to help people get to the end goal. Um, but that's kind of not how it really works right now, at least, you know, from, from my view, honestly. Uh, Jason, I, I want to dive straight into a, a, a topic here, maybe a little bit out of left field. But I've heard that you've hacked into a bank <laughs> with some teams. <laughs> yeah. How do you start yeah. when your goal is to kind of penetrate penetrate a bank? What is the first start? And I, I want to kind of come at this with like the the mind of like what what I, what a hacker is thinking. How do you start by eating this this elephant? And, you know, how does it work? Because we understand how you, you might get initial access into, into a smaller company or, or, or deliver some malware or fish. How do you start with a bank? Yeah, I mean, um, as far as like a red teaming or penetration testing engagement goes, like it depends on the scope, right? Like, um, but I mean, uh, a bank is no different than any other enterprise. Um, and in fact, in some ways is, is worse or better um, than some other enterprises. So... Uh, when we, uh, my first job was where I had the most exposure 
to hacking banks. And so as part of a small company called Redspin, which was a consultancy that I started off in, I was on the pen test team and the red team. And we had a whole bunch of full scope engagements, which were really fun, um, which some of my, my stories and darknet diaries come out of and, uh, and some other ones. But, um, that's where I did a lot of my physical stuff. And so, uh, you know, our, our basic methodology was to, uh, basically profile all of the employees at the bank, um, and to target for phishing, right. Um, which if it's a big bank, there's a lot of opportunity there, um, to profile the technology that they use for email and, you know, what type of filters might be in place and what type of protections might be in place. So we could try to get around that. Um, and then send out phishing campaigns to try to get from external to internal and pivot and uh, install like a you know backdoor C2 malware or something like that um, eventually. Um, when that wouldn't work, uh, we would do physical reconnaissance on the bank to understand what their physical security controls were, you know, hours of operation, when employees left, when people were doing like the deposit drop-offs and um, you know, where they held their shred bins, you know, where their trash was. Um, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so as part of Redspin, we would, we would do the external and try to fish and then also look for any application vulnerabilities, right? We found many banks, you know, who had web application flaws or we were able to, you know, like get into things we weren't, you know, we weren't supposed to, but, you know, some of the funner stories I have are like actually the physical things. I remember, um, one of the credit unions, um, we were part of, uh, uh, we literally just waited for somebody to come to the back alley of this bank to open the door. We walked up in a shred bin uniform of the company that managed the shred bins. We had found a shirt at a thrift store um, that looked like the same color. It was a button up and we made our own patch for it. We walked in, said we were here to pick up the shred bin. They hadn't locked it physically to the um to the premises. And we just walked out and put the shred bin in our truck and took off. Um, and inside the shred bin hadn't been any, anything shredded and had a bunch of passwords on sticky notes and all this kind of stuff. And so immediately we got like more access than pretty much we had gotten through the phishing campaign and the external and, and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, that's kind of stuff that can happen. Um, you know, always wear a hat so that the overhead cameras, uh, can identify you, um, you know, dress the part, have confidence to social your way in there. We've also, you know, like as, as part of those, I've dumpster dived, you know, in the rain where I'm in the trash and it's like nasty and I'm digging through trash bags to find credentials and stuff like, like when you're targeting like those kind of physical assessments, it's, um, you know, it's not always glamorous. You're, you know, sometimes you're falling through things. Sometimes you get caught like, uh, but some of the better stories are, you know, ones like that where we, we pulled off some other stuff. So, yeah. It's it's so interesting when you talk about it because I think most people when they think about hacking into areas that it's going to you're going to be sitting behind your computer, um, you know, trying to but actually security encompasses so many different elements. And then I, I guess what is the 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 real challenge is being able to put these together in a chain of events that's going to enable you access. So, you know, okay, you found a password on a sticky note. How do you then actually leverage that to be able to get into the network or or some other areas? So putting that together, I th- I'll, I'll create a how-to video after this. How do, how Jason says you should become a bank hacker. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, I've actually targeted a ton of banks in my in my history through 
through like full scope red teaming through bug bounty through just application pen tests and stuff like that. So, I mean, I, I, you know, like one of the stories that I wrote about, um, you know, I, I write some of my hacking exploits. I obviously nuke the names of the customers and, you know, uh, but I talk about them and like how I did them. And like, you know, some are as easy as like, you know, like, um, you know, I disassembled a mobile app and found a hard coded credential in a mobile app for a major bank and then wrote that password down and then was doing and, you know, recon on their whole web footprint, which was massive, found a couple sites where that credential worked, logged into there, pivoted from there, found, you know, an S3 bucket I had access to, managed to grab a whole bunch of pictures of checks, managed to pivot to the internal network of the bank, and then it was off to the races from there. So, like, um, really, every every test is different. Um but uh, one of the things I tell testers is, is, is like, uh, always write down credentials that you find because if they don't work where you are at, they will work somewhere else eventually. So like, don't just discard them. A lot of people like will find uh, these days in Bug Bounty, they will find credentials on GitHub that a developer has accidentally committed to um, the public instead of the private, and um, they're they're public repo instead of the company's private repo, or they've like committed their, you know, batch RC file or some environment variable or something like that. And they've accidentally committed it to um, public GitHub and people will find it. And then they won't be able, they don't know where it's, where that username or password is referenced, but I always keep those in, you know, my notes so that when I'm testing the web applications that maybe that employee worked on, I can try those credentials again. And a lot of times it works. I would say like 50% of the time it works. We know it's a growing problem too, not a not a shrinking problem. But uh, we just put out our state of secret sprawl report for 2023. Last year, we found over 10 million credentials just hanging out in public GitHub repos. Uh, Six million in the year before that, and that's not cumulative. That's new. A question about something you did recently. You put on Twitter back uh, a couple months. Uh, not a bank, but the other end of the entire spectrum. I think from one way of looking at it, a prison. You had to go to prison. Um, you did a great write-up, uh, so don't really want to get into the nitty-gritty details of exactly the exploit here because people can go read that on Twitter. We'll put that link um, in, in the description. But uh, I'm really curious about a little, like the why more than more than the how. Um, I know it's a bug bounty, and I know part of your purview, but it was just like the fun challenge of a prison sounded fun to hack into or like – why why was that a target? Uh I mean the well, first of all, it was a software that was specifically made for prisons. So it was syndicated basically to you know most of the prisons in the United States um to do a thing. Um that's about as much as I can say about it. So it wasn't like I, I hacked into any one specific prison. I hacked this software that had tendrils into all of these prisons. Um and That's so much uh, worse than hacking into a single prison. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, you you, you played it down. But it was like, I, I, didn't hack, well, I didn't hack a prison, guys. I hacked all yeah. the prisons. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it was, uh, it was a bug bounty program. I mean, like bug bounty is an opportunity cost, right? Because there are public bug bounties and private bug bounties. And if you're going to spend the time, you only get if you only get money or, you know, a payout if you find something. And so like there has to be this right combination of interest in the target and an opportunity for payout in order for me to look at it. Cause I have a nine to five job. I have three kids and you know, it's, it's crazy. I'm a CISO. So, um, so that one came at the perfect time where it was like right before a weekend um, where I had some time on my hands just for myself. 
I was feeling the itch to hack. Um, it was a private program, meaning that, you know, I'm not facing the whole world. I'm only facing maybe like a hundred other hackers who got invited to this program. And it was interesting software, you know, belonging to this like, you know, company. And so that combination, I was like, all right, I'll look at it. And, um, yeah, so I mean, I basically, uh, took a shot and I got lucky and, um, you know, like it's also an interesting story because, you know, what I don't reference in my Twitter thread is actually that the, the endpoint explicitly that I found that had all of the um, flaws in it was um, not in scope for that. It was out of scope, but I still found it through the main site that was in scope. So like I kind of had to talk to the program owner through a submission and I'm like, hey, listen, I found this really bad flaw. Um, it's on this endpoint, um, but that's not in scope. Do you want me to submit it? And I kind of talked through what it was, but I didn't give them the whole volume. And they were like, yeah, absolutely submit it. And so I submitted it and I was lucky that they accepted it and expanded the scope. And um, basically they had this chat bot on the main page and um, the chat bot, they were hosting the technology for the chat bot themselves was hosted off another server of theirs. Um, and so I followed that to its endpoints and I found a directory listing. Um, I did some brute forcing and I found a directory listing in some of these paths that uh, basically had the keys to the kingdom in um, an open directory to the internet. It had credentials, it had team viewer credentials to get into the main software components to administrate some of the servers. Uh, it had videos from you know a lot of the different um, prisons. It had, uh, it was crazy. It was nuts. They, they basically had used the server not only for their chat bot, but also for like their total NAS for the whole software, <laughs> um, which which blew my mind. But also I was like, okay. And, you know, and then I found some other vulnerabilities too with some other sites and um, yeah, it was, it was a good, good time. That's uh okay. That's a wild story. Let's pivot away from your, your, your hacking adventures now. And I want to look at it uh, from the exact opposite side. Now you've, you're a CISO now, you were a CISO at Ubisoft, massive companies. You've been in, in security for a long time. And one thing that's quite interesting is that we, last year we followed the Lapsus group uh, in the year before quite closely because they were doing a lot of source code leaks of, of organizations, you know, and so we, we were, we were following them quite closely now they didn't, as far as I know, they didn't leak out Ubisoft source code, but you were affected by the the the, the lapses, you know, let's call it incident. So I guess to start off with is kind of like what 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 actually happened? How did how did what did Lapsus do? How did they get into Ubisoft's kind of environment? So Lapsus was they had a couple of TTPs um, that were pretty prevalent for them, but mostly they used credentials on companies like us and NVIDIA and, and stuff like that. And so a lot of times they weren't getting those credentials from anything they were doing. They weren't running phishing campaigns. Um, they were actually buying them off of the dark web, off of places like Genesis Market and things like that. Um, so they were they were letting other people do mass phishing campaigns, searching through the output of mass fishers campaigns, um, which were mostly cred still or malware. And then they were buying them as opportunities to hack into bigger businesses for the clout, basically. Um, and so they, uh, yeah, they they basically found a credential that, you know, you know, basically what happened is over COVID, everybody went work from home, right? And a lot of businesses couldn't afford immediately to 
provision laptops to every employee who pivoted to work from home. And so what that meant is that everybody was now using SaaS software to interface with with work on their personal computers, uh, which had no protection, basically no no EDR, you know, there's no no nothing. Um, and so, you know, like if you'd ever torrented anything, you might have already had a keylogger on your machine. Or if, you know, you got hit by a fish on your personal Gmail account, you know, now this extends the boundary of the normal security kind of um, perimeter to people's personal computers. And so a lot of them had already been compromised or whatever, but, you know, uh, basically those credentials end up on the on the dark web forums. And then Lapsus would go there and buy them for you know, like 20 to 50 bucks and look for domains like NVIDIA, like Ubisoft, like EA, like whatever. Uh, and that's what would be the start of their their campaign against you is, is gra- gathered some credentials. Um, and so then they would go from there and they would use the credentials on common. Uh, well, it's not just credentials, too. They sell cookies as part of those packages too. session session um, variables, basically, or session identifiers. And so not only do they have this credential to log into your systems, which normally would be kind of okay because everywhere you should have two-factor authentication, but they have the cookies and the cookies bypass two-factor authentication if you don't have a bunch of security controls set up for like impossible travel or all these fancy things. Um, and so they would target things like Slack and, um, and, Mike, and Microsoft O365 and uh, try to get into those using these cookies um, and they would just paste the cookies into their browser and then try to log in as the person. And a lot of times they would get into Slack or they could get into the web portal of Office 365 of the user because the cookie was already there. And then a lot of people tie their, um, they tie their access to their internal network to a VPN and they tie that to the SSO that Microsoft provides which uh, is your Microsoft credential. And so they have that already because it's the same credential as the portal for Office 365. So now what they need to do is get past um, a VPN two-factor authentication prompt if you have one set up. Many people didn't two years ago. Now they know better um, to have two-factor authentication on your VPN. Um, And so if you didn't have that, or if you had two-factor authentication, then they would do a couple of things. They would... um, they would attempt to change your two-factor authentication device in the uh, Office 365 portal because they had the cookie and they were in there already and they could change it to their own phone and then they had access to get in. Um, if for some reason you had security controls that didn't allow them to change the two-factor authentication token, they would just bomb your user with request after request after request You know, at 8 p.m. at night and the employee would just be like, what the heck is going on with my phone? They were getting these push notifications for like, let me in, you know, let me in. And they would push trust eventually and they would get in. And their last method um, would be to vish the person. So in the case of Uber, they basically uh, found the user's WhatsApp number, called them on WhatsApp, said that they were Uber security. They were doing some integration testing and they needed to click the trust button on the phone prompt they were getting, and then that got them into um, the network. Um, and so that's how they got into like the corporate LAN in many of the instances. Um, in cases where that path didn't work, they would go to Slack and they would basically root around in Slack as the user because they had the cookie, bypassed everything, and they would look for um, they would look for credentials that were hard coded in messages to other people, pinned in channels. Uh, 
you know, posted in documents that were inside Slack. And invariably, any company who uses Slack has done that before, you know, has pasted a credential and they would gather all these credentials and documentation until they found another avenue into the local network. It's, it sounds like a very familiar story that you just painted because, you know, we broke down what happened at Uber and all of this. It's that, that thing, you buy the credential. I'm, I'm amazed at how cheap they are, like these credential packs. Obviously, they're selling it to multiple people, but that's uh, it's it's wild how that all works. And then just kind of, yeah, just keep trying it until they until they get in. What 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 happens? You're the CISO. You've got the alert. Okay, we think that we have a security incident. What do you do? Like what what? How does that day go when you're the CISO and you've just been told that a hacker could be in your system? It's not a great day, I would say. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. So I mean, my specific story with that was, um, you know, like you get a call very early in the morning and at first it's, you know, it started off as like, we think there's an issue, but it wasn't really necessarily a security issue, but it was a, you know, a different type of issue, a downtime issue. And, uh, everybody's looking into it. So as an executive, you get on board, you get up, you get your coffee and, um, and then eventually, you know, you figure out, and this is for any breach, right? Eventually you figure out through, you know, collaboration with it and your SOC investigating, you know, a, you know, an issue of that magnitude that, oh, it's a security issue. And then you're kind of like, oh crap, here we go. Um, and so you, you basically rally your team to, uh, you know, stop working on everything that they're currently working on. And we're, we're heading into kind of, investigation incident response mode for you know this thing depending on how big it is like you know small one person you know ransomware is probably not going to institute something like this but anything that causes downtime or significant loss or the attacker still running amok in your network or any of these other things it's kind of all hands on deck and so um you know really we had a very well uh set up um kind of cabal of the of the executive leaders in IT. And so we would get together and discuss our strategy. I would kind of verse them, break down what we knew was happening versus what we thought was happening. You know, it's, it's it really important that phase to understand that there are things that you're assuming and that there are things that actually have taken place. And so break it all down for them um, and then talk about what your proposed strategy is and they'll have a lot of context around, you know, IT and other systems and even, you know, like PR will be in there sometimes to like, you know, know when you have to do a notification legal will be in there. And um, yeah. And so uh, we got together and then after that, we basically battle planned, you know, what the response would be. And this is in conjunction with your SOC already and threat intelligence already working on the problem, right? Going into their methodology for, you know, finding out if there's still exposure and, and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really different in every you know, instance, because in this case, the lapsus prerogative was to bring down the business. Very few times did they ask for a ransom to any of their victims. I think it was only two times out of all their victims they asked for a ransom. Really, they were in it for the clout and to bring these companies down. And so, um, you know, like I I went on a tear after this because I was so pissed that you know, like we had a great team at Ubisoft, fantastic people. We had a great leadership team. We had um, we had adequate budget for our size and we still got breached in this way. And so did some really, really big companies. I mean, even Microsoft got breached by Lapsus. Yeah. Yeah. In NVIDIA, Microsoft, Samsung. Yeah, NVIDIA. Like they, yeah. There is, they, yeah. These are all what companies that I would consider have great security posture. Yeah. Yeah. And so I basically picked up the phone after we were out of incident response mode 
and we had kind of like worked to recovery and started calling the CISOs of all of those places that you just listed and other people I knew privately who had been affected with lapses but weren't in the news. And um, I think I must have called about 40, 45 CISOs um, just because I – I knew them from Slack and was like, hey, I just want to get on the phone with you, talk about this. And we started sharing threat intelligence and where our gaps were for you know, this particular type of threat actor. And we just realized that like so there were so many blind spots that we had not been prioritizing. And it's kind of changed the way I look at security, security programs, and security leadership since that incident, honestly. It's um it's really changed the way I look at stuff. So so you're telling me there's a secret CISO Slack channel for all the CISOs I got? How do I get it? There's multiple, actually, yeah. <laughs> I want to find a cookie for that Slack channel. <laughs> so your Botobot now, um, what, what is that? What, what's that all about? What's the high level? Yeah, so Botobot is uh, an adversarial emulation company. Um, so basically, we're bringing kind of red teaming to the mid-market uh, full scope red teaming um, minus physical, but basically what I learned from the lapsus incidents and and kind of my bug bounty experience is that um, is that the security industry is not addressing a lot of the real problems. They're addressing little point in time problems and small things, uh, but people are still continuing to get breached. And you know I'll talk later about kind of the lapsus incident and stuff like that, but. Um, we basically built a service that emulates a real attacker. So we, you know, we do this year-long service um, where my team and I go out and act like an adversary, uh, and we will go to the dark web and look for credentials and um, try to use them against you and pivot internally. And so it's it's really kind of cutting-edge red teaming stuff, and um, that's kind of my jam, right? I really love offensive security, and I've built out some great methodologies, and so. Uh, we do, you know, full external attack surface management too. We profile your whole company. It's not like we're just doing a pen test against one site. It's unscoped. And really, the end, at the end of the day, it's to answer the question: Can you get breached? That's the one thing we care about in this service. And um, it's a year-long service, and um, so it's called continuous adversary emulation. And so that's what we're we're doing right now at Buttobot with um, with a few customers and the government. And um, it's really been kind of a little bit of a shift in how testing takes place in offensive security. A really holistic sounding approach to yeah. actually improving your security. That's yeah, awesome. exactly. Yeah. Congrats on that venture. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, did want to just open the floor to you. Is there anything you just want to tell us in the security community? Anything we should be aware of on the horizon? Any just general advice you think should be floating out there? I promise this is not like a plug for for you guys because you work at a company that deals with secrets. But one thing I learned through Lapsus um, is how important a secrets management program is. And it's one of these things, like I said, I've I learned a lot from that, that breach. Um, and... And I feel like a lot of people are only addressing certain parts of a se- of a comprehensive secrets management program. And so what I would say, if you're an organization and you want to, um, I mean, you, you want to avoid, you know, kind of the lapse of style, you know, attackers and, you know, kind of how they pivot. Because I only told the external internal story. There's a whole nother story about what they did when they got into the network, um, which involves a lot of uh, secrets management components. And so... Uh, the way I've broken down secrets management programs now that I, I build places and I consult my other CISO friends is is in four phases. And if you're a security practitioner or you're a leader or whatever, like I would suggest trying to emulate this because it's it's been kind of 
pass to those 40 CISOs I talk to. So in a secrets management strategy, it's not just about detecting and, and preventing. There's four areas. There's detect, prevent, respond, and educate inside of a comprehensive secrets management program. And so the first area is detect, which um, is basically you're bound to at this moment in time and all of your repos and all of your Slack and all of your um, in all of your documentation places, you're bound to have hard-coded secrets. No company is immune from it. It happens everywhere. And so you have to find a technology that can detect where they are latently are right now. And so for us, we used a couple tools. I know that GitGuardian does stuff like that. And so um, you have to have a detection mechanism and you have to build it into, we built it into our red team our red team's mandate is to help us scan for secrets everywhere. And then we built it into our build pipelines. Um, and, uh, and we used, you know, regex for custom secrets too, that were only, you know, um, that were only ours, right? Because like, you know, a lot of the tools out there today have regex for certain types of secrets, certificates, usernames and passwords, API keys. Um, but we had some custom stuff too, that we had to build ourselves. So that's part of the detect branch. Then there's prevent, which you don't, you want, you know, the detect is to stop the bleeding kind of, and the prevent is to, you know, help you build for the future. And so uh, really we found the most efficient thing is pre-commit hooks, um, pre-commit hooks in the development lifecycle to stop developers from committing secrets anymore. And in your pre-commit hook, applying a pop-up that basically says, Hey, uh, either a command line warning or a web pop-up if you're using the web components um, that says, Hey, our preferred method of storing secrets is this. And so we went with, you know, vault. Um, and so that's in the respond category is you got to give them some way to do it correctly. You can't just block them from doing it if you don't give them a correct way to do it. Um, so we went with vault and then our, you know, our level up on top of having, you know, a great policy for vaulting secrets was also um, rotating them um, automatically with the vaulting technology. Um, and so that's in our respond branch. And then the last is educate. And we went, had to go on a tear about educating all developers and employees um, on not sharing secrets verbatim in chat channels, in documents, in anywhere. We built a custom platform to share user-based secrets. We educated people on password manage and corporate password managers. Um, and, uh, and those are like the four areas that we had to build a comprehensive program about. And so it's going to become... Like it's not on that CISO mind map right now, right? Like that I talked about earlier, right? But it's it's a big, big thing that's coming down the pipe that people are not addressing and they need to address because when you get breached, um, a lot of times the TTPs of the attackers, especially ones like Lapsus, are to move around your network silently and not trip any of your EDR or any of your internal controls. They are literally just collecting documentation and credentials until they feel like they have enough that they can strike so fast that your SOC can't even detect them or do anything with many accounts that they've gathered and, and to achieve their objective. And it's just not possible um, to do that. So that the way the, you know, kind of the vaccine is having the secret management program so they can't pivot and that your other tools have a better chance of detecting them. They have to resort to different things like installing software and stuff like that. Um, and you can catch them, you know, doing that with EDR and, you know, uh, NIPs and stuff like that. So um, that was one of the things I learned at Ubisoft. We built that program as very successful people, you know, that I used to work with are still there using that program today. So that's also we, we couldn't have paid for a bit. <laughs> I know, I know. I was thinking about it. I'm like, people are going to think that uh, they paid me. No, no. It, this is absolutely sound 
sound CISO advice. I just, you know, if people are out there want to know like where you should invest in your program, that's this area you should invest in. So, well, Jason, I don't want to take up any of your more time. It's been a really awesome episode. I don't think I've laughed so much recording one of these <laughs> awesome. episodes that I have with you. So this is going to be great. I can't wait to get it out there. So thanks for taking the time. And uh, I know that uh, you're you're pretty active on Twitter. If our users want to follow you, is Twitter the best place? Where else? And what's your handles? Yeah, I'm really active on Twitter at jhaddix, J-H-A-D-D-I-X. Um, my, com- my new company that I'm building right now, Buddobot, is at Buddo, B-U-D-D-O-B-O-T, at Buddobot. Um, and so we're on posting, and uh, you can find like my threads there and where we're going to be and, and all that kinds of stuff. So Great. Well, definitely check that out. And uh, thanks again so much for, for coming, Jason.